Welcome into show notes, everybody. It's good to be with you today on this glorious day in New York, at least. Not as glorious for 99, as I just discovered, because she is nursing a back something or other. Yeah, I'm 6,000 years old, and I threw my back out. It's really painful. Yeah, it's not fun. It's happened in the same way before, so I'm probably just dying. But one time, <laughs> it was during COVID, I remember, like, very vividly, because me and my sister were in Walmart, and I, like, couldn't walk. I had to just stop. And I was like, is this... Is this what am I going to do? Do I live here now? <laughs> so it's very painful. Anyone? Uh, what section were you in now? Because, you know. I think I was okay. near. I feel like I was in like, because our Walmart where we were didn't have a lot of groceries. We were there for like outdoor stuff. But I think I was in like wherever they kept peanut butter and like olives. So I guess I could have. It's like that. What is it? That Natalie Portman movie? Homes Where the Heart Is or something where she like lives in a Walmart. Didn't Never seen see it. it. Didn't see it. It might be just called Where the Heart Is. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I could exist on peanut butter for a long, long time. I don't really like peanut butter. I think we've talked about it. Yeah. Like I only like it in a few specific scenarios. But, you know, I suppose if it was end times in Walmart, I could do it. Lower back, upper back. Lower. Ooh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just inescapable, right? Yeah. Like if I'm sitting, if I'm standing, sleeping whatever like the shower was very painful today mm. and i was like <laughs> what do i do <laughs> but I'm sorry trying to muscle through it any chiropractors out there in the audience i know someone please i just I'm want someone an adjustment. to twist me like a sponge in a non-sexual way <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> all right well let's get into business here we have a redrop coming up this weekend but there's a reason for it i promise so this is to set us up for the upcoming series that we have on socialism the long-promised series on socialism. So my guess is that we'll probably be punctuating this series with some newer drops on like topical creams or mini episodes or whatever. But the replay this weekend with a new introduction is a refresher on isms specifically. So many of you have been with us for a while might remember our Capita Fascist Social Marxism episode. It's that one again with a new introduction to set us up as a primer for the series. So... Uh, that's what's going to happen this weekend, and uh, I'm I'm really, ooh, I'm very excited about the new series. It's a little heady, in that you know I did not study philosophy in college, so I'm an amateur at best. A lot of this is obviously going to take on the the structures of economic systems, but as they blend into social systems. Most of it trying to answer a key question that I have found very, very difficult. What is socialism? So in an attempt to, first of all, answer that very ethereal question, because it is that, because depending on where you are in the world, depending on what era, what generation you're in, depending upon the circumstances on the ground, depending on... on whether you believe that to be an economic formation or a social and political structure, you're going to get various answers to that. So I'm going to try to answer that through more of a modern contextual lens, because I think it strikes at the heart of, well, what do we mean by socialism and where we're headed with that if we're headed there at all? So you have a lot of proponents of Marxism and socialism especially among the younger voting demographic, which is 
interesting and exciting. It's something that was the literally third rail in this country for decades upon decades upon decades. And finally kind of came back into general acceptance in the mainstream, but specifically among younger voters. So we're going to try to identify what exactly we mean by that and uh, what it could possibly look like. But of course, in order to do that effectively, we do have to go back to the roots of it. We have to look at what the original theorists of it meant, how it was built upon and what it looked like in other countries. So there is going to be a lot of historical context, but uh, just know that what we're driving at is trying to understand what exactly that means and pretends for the American social, political and economic future. So that's that. Uh, Before we get into uh, the feedback, which we had a lot of this week, I just want to thank all the members to the show because, you know, as we said before, we offer our content for free. We don't gate any of the content that we have. And so we rely on the generosity of all the unfuckers to keep running this operation. So I just want to thank everybody who purchased our coffee or tipped us with virtual coffee, purchased our merchandise. Maybe you shopped in our bookshop at bookshop.org. Maybe you, uh, I don't know, loved a particular episode and tipped us on buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. But really, I just want to thank uh, especially the members who have come on to help build this into a very special community. One of the things that I'm noticing is that uh, as we gain new audience members that do not cross over with the podcast that are on YouTube, is that they're beginning to follow sort of a similar ethos as the unfuckers who have engaged with us in this community in the podcast, which is predominantly very productive comments and engagement. Some people are taking shots and some people don't like uh, what we're serving, and that's totally fine. I assume that, you know, whether it's the dislike button or the unsubscribes or whatever it is, that the people that don't really enjoy the content are, you know, making their voices heard by just not tuning in, and that's also fine. But those that are willing to engage with us are doing so in a really positive manner. And I just wanted to thank everybody on YouTube and thank, obviously, the podcast community. Bob Knudsen, who is curating Unfuckers at All in the Facebook group, which is a a group that's growing. Uh, And you'll see that it is a very productive and positive uh, type of uh, environment that they're fostering there. So thank you for that. And I appreciate it. Now. The Williamson and Kennedy episode did inspire a lot of uh, commentary, so we should get into that ASAP. But as is now typical for us, we're going to get into some headlines first and foremost. So let's start with the economy. And the little headline I have here is it's the stupid economy. So since December 2021, this is a this is a piece from The New York Times. It's an op ed from Paul Krugman, which I would encourage everybody to read. I think they said online it's about a two to three minute read, which is about right. And I'm just going to read a brief excerpt. Since December 2021, the U.S. economy has added almost six million jobs, while the unemployment rate has fallen from 3.9% to 3.4%, a level not seen since the 1960s. And no, unemployment isn't low because Americans have dropped out of the labor force. The percentage of adults either working or looking for a job has declined but that's almost entirely as a result of an aging population and a labor force participation is right back in line with pre-pandemic projections. That's not a narrative that you'll necessarily hear, by the way, on conservative outlets. And these are good jobs, according to workers themselves. According to the conference board, now the conference board is one of the, probably the best leading indicator boards and projections that we have that predicts recession activity. 
Uh, in fact, the, the conference board, I think, has been, I don't know, it's been around for about 50 or 60 years, and it has been able to at least uh, in it's been able to go back and predict based upon the indicators that it uh, that it uh, brings into its indices when we're about to head into a recession. So the conference board is a, is a pretty good note to look at. According to the conference board, which has been surveying job satisfaction since 1987, U.S. workers have never been more content, but inflation, while still elevated, has come way down. The inflation rate over the past six months was 3.3% compared with 9.6% last June. So the title of this is Why Are Americans So Negative About the con- the Economy? <laughs> Why th- do you think? <laughs> I think there's a couple of factors here. In the immediate, when inflation is as high as it is, y- you can't really be positive about the economy. So by noting that inflation has dropped and it's dropped precipitously from its high of last year, adds a little bit of fuel to the argument that it was transitory but extended transitory inflation. So less than the, I would say, the endemic inflation that we had in the 1970s, but certainly more than those momentary periods when you see, let's say, gas prices might go up or uh, some of the key ingredients to a lot of the food supply goes up and it happens in a short-term shock. This was definitely protracted from what we're used to and we haven't seen it in many, many years. That had a real effect on people and their incomes and their spending power. Of course, we've made the argument that it wasn't the Fed's policies of raising interest rates. In fact, that has, if anything, that's done uh, more to cool the economy uh, in a negative way when it didn't really need to be done. I do believe that this was still transitory and I do believe that it was predominantly as a result of corporate greed and uh, taking price as we covered multiple times. Uh, But it does show you that the core measures of the economy are strong because employment is strong. This We should be kind of celebrating this as a return from where we were at the uh, at the height of the pandemic, but it doesn't feel like it because of the negative feedback loop, I think that's on uh, not only media constantly, but also that very real effect of like, I just don't, I don't have as much money in my pocket, so I don't feel as good. I might have a good job. I might, you know, everything, all my circumstances might be the same. Maybe I have a fixed rate mortgage, so I really didn't get as punished as uh, variable rate mortgage holders, all those things. But you can't discount, I think, the impact on the, I would say, the general psychology of the American consumer and the average citizen in the United States uh, with when inflation was what it was. And that has a that has a an ongoing negative effect because when you lose your savings, when it's depleted, it's gone, and you you're just rebooting and you're starting all over again. So, I think that's the answer as to why Americans are so negative about the economy. But if we just zoom out a little bit, there's more to celebrate coming up, I think, than to be negative about. And that's that. Now, border crossings. So I found this kind of interesting. So uh, we pulled an article from Reuters. Migrant crossings drop at the U.S.-Mexico border after Title 42 expires. So Title 42 went into place uh, under the Trump administration, which basically said that without interview, without reason, without uh, intake at all, if you come to the border, you're going to be expelled immediately. And it is what it is. So what's interesting here is everybody was assuming that when that left and uh, Biden lifted Title 42, that there was gonna be a surge coming across the border. So as the Reuters article points out, the Biden administration plan requires migrants to schedule an immigration appointment through an app 
or seek protection from countries they pass through on their way to the U.S. border. If they do not follow the process and are caught entering the U.S. illegally, they're not allowed to try again even through legal means for five years, and there are prison terms for other violations. Again, when you zoom out and just look at the policy from a migrant perspective, under Trump, it looked like it was... I guess maybe meaner than it was that it, that there were it, there was more downsides to trying to cross the border, but in reality there wasn't. If you come to the border, you'll be expelled immediately, which is why you saw so many inflated numbers about the so-called surge during the Trump administration, certainly during the end of the uh, Obama years and the beginning of the Biden years. But a lot of the a lot of that figure was people trying to re-enter at different places and at different times. They would buy their time down in Mexico and they would try again. So now what you're seeing is there are consequences to this. As there should be, we should try to encourage legal immigration as much as possible. And they're trying to add more heft to the judicial system to vet the asylum seekers. That's a positive thing. I'm not against potentially punishing people for trying to cross illegally if they're not trying to apply for asylum and they're not trying to come through legal channels and they're just trying to come across the border, you do have to have tighter borders. You have to have all of those things. But I've also made the argument that immigration is a net positive to the United States. And even when people do get across the border, I'm not all that upset about it because that's the way it used to be. And when you have, when you take these restrictions away, the net inflow and outflow tends to balance itself out because, again, it still follows the seasons, it follows the harvest, it follows when there's work here, when there's not, etc. The people that are applying for amnesty and, and, and asylum, that's where we should be adding even more heft. We should be trying to get these done. But I think the, I think what I saw was every, every judge that is assigned asylum applications has more than 3,000 of them. So it's, it's, it's virtually impossible for us to get through the backlog. I would just approve them all. Get that stamp out. Get that stamp out is right. I would love that. I, I think you're right. Who cares? Let them come here. Let anyone come here. I don't want to be here. They want to be here so badly. Please let them. <laughs> yeah, I would I would love to see us process that in in such rapid fashion. I understand you need background checks. I understand you have to understand why people are trying why? to come we here and all that kind of stuff. We have criminals here too. We do. So we do. if they're criminals there, we'll bring criminals here and it's just all washes out in the mix. Is that the phrase? Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I, listen, you know me. I'm inclined to uh, to agree with you. Looking at the practical aspects of it where you have to track people and you have to get them, you know, at least administered and, and into a, a path for citizenship. We don't have the other piece of this puzzle, which is the path to citizenship when they get here. So... In so many different ways, the immigration policy here is broken. The point of sharing this article is to show you that the Trump administration, for all of its flexing and as, as tough as it, it, it purported to be, was basically just saying to people, if you come here, we're going to kick you out. That's it. Now, the separation of families and all of that stuff was 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 horrific and it was horrendous. It's a practice that, you know, again, started the framework for it was started under Obama, but nobody thought anybody would ac actually execute it in the way that Trump did. And that was that was horrific. But they're saying that there's going to be prison terms for coming across and you're not going to be able to reapply for five years. So in many ways, this policy is more harsh than what was being allowed under the Trump administration. And it just shows you that this we can't see things clearly through the lens of the mainstream media that wants to 
you've got the left media trying to sell this as a more, uh, I guess, human way to, you know, to do intake into the country. It's really not. And then you have the right wing that's saying that he's just opening the borders and not expelling people immediately, and he's being lax on immigration. Neither is true. Neither narrative is true. They're just convenient narratives that are based on false premises. Wait, so will we incarcerate them here for the prison violation? Yeah. Oh, cool. So it's like, we won't let you come here and make your own money, but we'll put you in our jail and have the government and our taxes pay for you. And maybe which is force you into labor. Maybe. Probably. Mm-hmm. That, that That's, if anything, this is way more Republican than than Trump's was. Like, exactly. you're right. Like, thinking about it from that aspect. It's exactly fucked up. right. Yep. <laughs> just, it's one of those things where you you just, this is why people can't stand the mainstream punditry that you see out there and why I tend to look at places just like straight up reporting like Reuters. That would be a good, like, from our how to talk about the Trump years, like the flip it. Like that would be a good level setting of like, yeah, I agree. We shouldn't be putting them in our prisons and paying for them anyway. We should just let them in and let them make their own money and pay their taxes. Mm -hmm. I still love going back to the Milton Friedman lecture that he gave on immigration saying that the best form of immigration into the United States is illegal immigration. He's a huge proponent of it. So I love throwing that back at the libertarian faces. Yeah. Like we said, once in a while, you know, a clock is right twice <laughs> a day. Um, what is it? I've, this is like a third idiom I've said. Or not, it's not an idiom, but like a phrase that washes out in the mix. The clock's right twice a day. My, I don't know uh, what's happening. And my back's, I, I think it's because of my back. I'm turning into like an old man. You're turning into me. Yeah. Yeah, it's perfect. This is great. This is, we've reached the singularity. And all it took was a lower back injury. Great. My little one is not a reader. My eldest has, I think, read more than I have at this point already. I mean, she's just a voracious reader. My little one, like I've said before, I could write a book about her and she wouldn't <laughs> read it. And uh, so when she hears idioms for the first time, like, uh, you know, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. She likes to use it in the wrong time. On purpose? On purpose, just to annoy the shit out of mm-hmm. me. And uh, it's very funny. She's, <laughs> she is constantly trolling me in real life. Good. I'm glad that someone is carrying my work out. Yeah. No, when it's, I, when uh, I'm it's not inescapable around. for me. Good. Inescapable. Me and her should team up. I'll have to make a group chat. Uh, you got the same blonde curly hair. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, yeah, she's like a mini 99. Mm. Yeah. Except, Except much, you read. No, I was going to say she has like talents and like accomplishments. Uh, on the sp- on the sports field, yours are uh, yours are lights out. I'll just say that. So. Yeah, hers is going to get her a college scholarship. Mine didn't. <laughs> yeah, it seems like uh, your skill set is is limitless. It's always something new that I, surprises me. I guarantee when I get to athletics, I will cap out. There's I don't I can make like some baskets, you oh. know, from the normal whatever line. Call back to uh, Howard Gardner theory of multiple intelligences, one of Manny's favorite, and we all have different superpowers. Mm. Continuing headlines for a second, an episode I'd really love everybody to check out, and this does correlate to what we're going to talk about with uh, Williamson and Kennedy, is Jen Briney's Congressional Dish, which you know I'm a big fan of. Episode 273 is with Dr. Maya Kornberg. Kornberg is a research fellow for Brennan Center of Justice, and they talk about how and why the power of committees has shifted over time, 
how witnesses are selected for hearings, why the hearing archives disappeared, and more. One of the things that Jen is really, really good at is deep dives on very specific issues by going and looking at congressional testimony, at the hearings, at the records, combing through the actual legislation, but not just the final legislation, the drafts and the iterations that it goes through, looking at who came to the hearings, for example, was it an expert? Has that person showed up a lot at different hearings and just been continually leveraged by different uh, you know, chair people of, of different committees because they're inside the Beltway system? Is the person, uh, they had a great side conversation about the benefits of COVID and virtual testimony at committee hearings because one of the things that you know didn't occur to me, for example, is that they don't pay for people to travel for a congressional hearing. So if you have a, a cause that's really important to you, they're having a special committee hearing about this thing, but you live on the West Coast, it's incumbent upon you to find the funds to go travel to support it. That's not really an option for a, for a huge swath of the population that does really good work and might be specialists and experts in particular industries. So there tends to be this mini little echo chamber surrounding DC of the people that almost become sort of like professional testifiers at committee hearings. The barriers were broken down during COVID. And one of the things that Dr. Kornberg was saying was, and we heard from people we'd never heard from before. And the, the hearings actually were better. So little nuggets like that. I'll let you listen to the episode. I really would encourage you to listen to this. If I could pair Dr. Kornberg's book up with another one, it would be uh, Kill Switch by Adam Gentleson. And the reason I'm pairing those up is because those two books and these two authors give us a, a whole other level of insight into the proverbial sausage making that is legislation in DC. Why it's different here than every other country, why it's different in our system than certain parliamentary systems, than comparable uh, democratic systems that you find in other parts of the world. And it shows you the nuances of what the power structure really looks like to get these things done. So why is that important in the context of our discussion today and what we just released with the Williamson and Kennedy episode is that these are people who are explaining at a very, very deep level how legislation crosses the finish line. The role of the executive is to set the course for where the country is going to go over a limited period of time. And within that framework, there are a few things the executive can do uh, that are outside of the legislative sphere. So I, I would say go to war, but technically, even though we haven't done it for years, it does require congressional authorization to do that. And we're finally getting back to that uh, to that norm under Biden. But the many conflagrations that we've had since the Kennedy administration have all been of executive design. That's a tremendous amount of autonomy when you consider executive powers and the separation of powers between uh, the judiciary, the legislative branch, and the executive. There are other things that they can do, issuing executive orders. They're typically temporary, as we saw under Trump and Obama, they can be overturned with another administration. But mostly what they're trying to do is set an agenda, set the course for the nation. They're the, the top cheerleader for that agenda. And they have to work with Congress in order to ratify that agenda and turn it into law, which then becomes part of the U.S. Code. My argument 
in the Williamson and Kennedy episode was that neither one of these candidates has any clue how to do this or affect any of these changes. I study this stuff all day, every day, and have for years, and I'm still learning new things from Dr. Maya Kornberg and from Jen Briney at Congressional Dish and from Adam Gentleson with Killswitch and all of the other professionals that are putting their uh, their work out there for us to understand how this is done. The episode is a really good deep dive into certain parts of the legislative process from the committee perspective, the power that the com- that the committee chairs have, whether they are transparent, how accessible they make the documents from the committee hearings, the power of the staff. They talk a little bit about how Newt Gingrich basically changed the entire landscape of Congress and the way that uh, and and shifted the balance of power from the committee chairs and the committee hearings and kind of consolidated within the majority, um, which is, again, something that I don't think can be overstated enough how much damage Newt Gingrich, one person did in a very short period of time under the Clinton years to consolidate power and set the set the course. You know, we call him the man who destroyed democracy. He didn't destroy democracy, but he certainly destroyed civility. And I think more than people realized, he destroyed the legislative the normal legislative path. Now, sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's a terrible thing. For example, it took us hundreds of years to abolish slavery. It took us over a hundred years to technically, technically abolish slavery in this country because of that very arduous political process and legislative process. So yeah, there are downsides to having this uh, structure the way it is, But on the other side, man, you see what happens when you have, imagine all of this power consolidated under Kevin McCarthy and then somebody like Donald Trump and then you lose the Senate. What they could do without even having to really get too deep into their committee members is potentially horrifying. Likewise, if you're a Republican under the Biden administration, the Biden administration hasn't really moved to change any of these kind of any of this new way that we do business because they're legislating by omnibus, which means that all of those little bills that used to get vetted through the committees and the committee hearings and the chair people and they get the experts to testify. And then they have to remember that before a bill can become a law, it's supposed to pass through committee to get changed, to get vetted, maybe killed. You see more often than not bills, quote, die in committee. What you're seeing now is These huge omnibus bills that are supposed to just be spending bills are gobbling up all of these smaller bills that are bypassing the committee infrastructure and just getting appended to these, what we refer to as Franken bills, right? This really explains why that's happened, how it's evolved over time and some of the dangers that are inherent to that. You know, in New York, they had a, a saying for years called three men in a room and because it was always the governor Uh, the head of the Senate and the head of the assembly that literally made all of the decisions. They'd do it behind closed doors. They would release budgets. And there was almost no discussion about it. It was a huge pain point for years and years. And then it broke a little bit under Cuomo, ironically, even though it was still him very much wrestling his agenda because he gave the appearance of transparency. But then he would, you know, he would he would punish anybody that outwardly spoke against him. Uh, And now it's one woman in a room under Kathy Hochul, who is even shunned 
uh, her own leaders, even though she has the majority in, in both houses. And that's what took so long to get the New York budget out. But anytime you see that type of consolidation of power within the legislative process, I think it's a really dangerous thing. And this uh, this episode will help you understand why. And it's a good bridge to us talking about why I do believe that you need professionals to be running this stuff so that they can understand the amount of time it would take to get up to speed on how the legislative process is done if there was just a, a newbie in, in, in that executive office is too much. Again, witness one Donald J. Trump. So anyway, before we get to that, uh, I did want to drop uh, a neat little article from Popular Science. And this is all about how to make a homemade bomb. Now, why is this important? Well, you're laughing at your own joke. I am. Nerd. I am a nerd. It's not that kind of bomb, but I thought this was so neat. It's inspired by a TikTok trend, which shows you that there is some use for TikTok. There's a lot of use for TikTok in my house. I still, we just laugh my ass off. We watch videos now almost nightly. Cute. So my little one curates all the videos that she thinks I'm going to find funny. But she's also complained that I've it's completely fucked up her feed mm. with stuff that like middle aged men would find funny. Um, but anyway, so inspired by TikTok trends, Popular Science has a quick DIY guide on how to make seed bombs at your house so that you can kind of spread stuff in your neck of the woods to help increase biodiversity. And that's pretty neat. It's really simple. It's a three-step process and involves clay and some seeds and then just throwing them out your car window or just your backyard or just walking to, if you live in an urban environment, just throwing it in like an abandoned lot. It's kind of cool. Maybe if the lot has grass in it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. (laughs) Not like a parking lot. Although, you know. And feed your birds. I always love those. uh, not bread. Those apocalypse movies where you see like, you know, New York is ruined, but mm. the biodiversity is kind of taken over. So maybe uh, when the world ends, you can start the process of like introducing some biodiversity to urban landscapes that will, uh, you know, soon rain during the apocalypse. Yeah. Sure. But yeah, feed your birds, but don't feed them bread because no, it's right. bad for them. It's like a sponge in their stomachs and it's bad. But you should look up what your local birds eat. Because it's so cute. What do they eat? Depends on what birds you have. You um, have to I have check the mix. I, I think are sparrows. Yeah, probably cardinals and blue jays. Blue oh. jays very close to my heart. Wow. Yeah, we get some pigeons by my house. Oh, because well. we're near the high school, yeah. and I think it's just like it's like a garbage dump. So like they'll eat like whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, there's usually you can go to a garden store and get a mix some type of mix sunflower seeds corn i fed that turkey in the parking lot i oh, fed yeah. him almonds because it was all i had and they can eat almonds hmm. so did you know that or did you look it up i looked it up okay because i wouldn't yeah i wouldn't want to feed like I, w- I wouldn't want to take that chance right i've thought about my mom i mean she she keeps in her car <laughs> she feeds the geese by her office even though you know, you're you're not supposed to technically, because then they like stay there and people don't want them there. But mm. we're a geese, we're a geese lover family. They're little goslings and they're all they're yellow and so they're fluffy. Cute. I know they're so cute. They just want to live, and it's really sad. Like they live, they we took their home, so it's our fault. But yeah, feed your local wildlife. I just can't stand it when I'm out on the golf course mm. and I have to navigate all of that goose poop. <laughs> just what, you know, they talk about, a you know, a good walk spoiled. Tell me about it. 
Ew. I don't golf. FYI. Can't stand it. By the way, the Mets, we got them right where, right where we want them. We're playing the most unbelievable game of rope-a-dope right now. We're on the ropes. Everybody thinks that we're just, you know, we're not as good as we actually are. We're hanging there near the bottom of the division. <laughs> yeah. You won't even see it coming sure. when we take over. Amazing. I'm, I what a plan. I share your fandom, but I don't share your delusion. What a, what a plan. I'm just not as emotionally invested. Like, it makes me sad, but I'm not going to, like, be devastated. I'm not going to be devastated either because we're going to win the World Series. There we go. And I'm going to see us coming. Sure. We're about to play the Rays as of this recording. It's going to be <laughs> fucking disaster they have these the new Rays things so good. at at city field where it's like basically it's a big like walk-in cooler and you can pick your own beer and check yourself out oh i saw that yeah yeah i hadn't seen them i maybe i just didn't notice them last year but that way you know you can minimize your contact with people as much as possible they also built this is how much money our owner has converted this uh, spot by the bullpen into what he calls the prohibition room and you can see it it's out in right field hmm. so they turn the if you look at right field now it's actually a chain link fence with fans right behind it at field level there's only like 200 seats in there and you're literally on field, le field level so when the right fielder goes back against the wall to catch it you're sitting right there at that level right in front of him it's incredible to watch I wonder if I was sitting above that I just went to a game recently. You got in right field? I believe so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I forget what they used to call that deck over there, but yeah, probably. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Pretty neat. Spent $30 million to convert that room in the off season. Wow. Yeah. They also have a brewery like outside. Mm. I, yeah. I, I haven't been to the, it's Ebbs now. It used to be McKellar. It was fine. I didn't like the beer I got. I got a, mm. a Goza, which I thought was going to be tart, but it tastes like apple juice. I have to tell you, like, I, you know, I married into... A Red Sox family, but it's okay because we have a sports prenuptial, so my kids root for the Mets. But I did give up, give up the Jets, it was which the, I think is yeah, a pretty the good easy trade, trade, right? So he gave them a winning team. We've gone to. I'll go with my father-in-law every couple of years. We go to uh, Fenway. We go to Fenway, and it's a dump. <laughs> it's a dump, and I love it. Yeah, I love every second of it. It's good just vibes. The walking into it is just so incredible, and the walking yeah. out. I mean, it's just I don't know. It's a different level. I've yeah. never been. Have you been Wrigley? No, I've only for professional. I've only ever been to Yankee Stadium and Fenway the Mausoleum and yeah, and City Field. But I I didn't see like a game at Fenway. I just saw Dead and Company. So, <laughs> you know, I've been to the stadium, but I saw a concert. I think that's yeah, I think that's all I've been to. Been to a bunch of minor league stadiums with Sleepaway Camp. Such an easy thing to just cart a bunch of kids to a minor league game, sit them down, give them like five dollars for French fries. Mm -hmm. Counselors can just chill. Yeah, that's so. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, lots of different weird minor leagues. I called ninety nine. I was all excited over the weekend because we saved the possum. I was asleep. Did, could you tell? You were a little snoozy. I was and like, I felt hello. Bad about that. No, I was more just like, am I like your fortieth emergency contact? You couldn't reach anyone else. I was Don't worried. Get me. It, I was up after a minute. It just took yeah. me a second to adjust. Yeah. But, but I figured you you were my second phone call after my eldest at college. I called her because I knew she'd be really excited mm -hmm. about it. We went to the most amazing place. So it was this woman's house. So we had a, my lab found a possum and then was playing with it for like an hour before I figured it out because, you know, the lab can't really kill anything. You know, she just sits there with it in her mouth. Uh, but the possum was injured. So we found this place that would take it in. 
This woman had 80 baby raccoons in the house. Did you take pictures? Yes, I did. Okay. I have them for you. Good. And so I was holding baby raccoons that were crawling over. I'm sure she is the scourge of her neighborhood. <laughs> so I had to go into the suburbs to do this. I actually think it was a time slip and you met me in the future. I mean, it's possible. <laughs> you know, it was like high strangeness. <laughs> it's totally possible. So we walk in, there is a giant pig asleep in the living room. She's like, don't mind the pig. Just step right over him. Like, okay. But one of the- you, they're like dogs. A black one. Mm -hmm. Like, a, is that a boar or is that no, a pig? They can, what, they're black pigs. I mean, it's huge. It's probably like a potbelly pig. Is that it, what it is? I mean, it had I, the tusks I though. The... What is that? I don't know then. I don't know if boar, I don't know if it's like the same conversion of like bulls and cows. I'm not sure. Wow. It was enormous. So I stepped <sighs> over so the boar. It's because Mike, like the micro pigs or whatever they call mini pigs, they don't exist. They're not real. People get we pigs. We bred them that way? Or they're just babies? No, they, yeah. People buy them. They think that, I mean, there are pigs that are just small. Like there are breeds that are smaller, but like they don't have chihuahua, like pigs that say the size of chihuahua forever. So people buy pigs as pets and they get huge. They get mm -hmm. to be like 300 pounds and, you know, you need to walk them and stuff. So I have a, my friend's brother has, has a pig, like same, but he kept him. Like, I think he knew he was going to get big. So oh, he, but he kept long? him. Um, I think they have a pretty decent lifespan if they're cared for well. Yeah. I don't know. I just never seen one inside somebody's living room in like a, just a prototypical suburban house. It was pretty amazing. Just wait. <laughs> and then, uh, the, but the raccoons, I know people don't like raccoons, but. All these baby raccoons. I could. I wanted to take every single one from home. They're they're obscenely cute. People raise them as pets. Yeah, yeah. My dad knew uh, a guy out west that had one. Um, do you remember the book we had to make years ago? Were you here for that? No. Oh man. I I'll don't think. Tell you about that later. But yeah, you know, it was all about this man and his baby raccoon. Yeah. No, that was definitely before my time. I would have been all over that shit. Yeah, you would have. It was torturous for us to put it together, but it was, um, we had to do it because my dad's friend and I don't know. I anyway. love, they're just so cute. They got little hands and their little tails and their little nose-ins. They're like cats that stand. Like, yeah, were they they're... standing up? I like when they just look at you and they're like. Yeah. Yeah. And they were all, so there's just multiple, um, pack and plays set mm -hmm. up around the room. And with little uh, sheets over them to uh, to keep them in, and they kept popping their heads up under the sheets and just crawling all over. I mean, they're oh my god, they were adorable. What I couldn't figure out is the house did not stink. Like she takes care of it. Amazing, just amazing. I mean, the pig you can take outside to go to the bathroom, but the raccoons it's interesting. I don't know. She must just change it out pretty often. Whatever I think she uh, makes sure that they're not diseased. Um, if anybody looks a little funky, she gets them on some antibiotics. She makes sure that they're all healthy. And then she does a, like a mass release into preserves, something like that. Yeah. But I just mean, even like, like my roommate had a guinea pig and, and even that smelled just a, like, oh, not yeah. bad, yeah. just like a little bit, like you smelled it, you know, just like the combination of the food and like mm -hmm. the, the hay and stuff. So yeah, it's surprising that it didn't with have my like, allergies. I thought I would be freaking out. Totally I used fine. to hold the guinea pig and then I'd break out and just like hives yeah. because I was allergic to the, like literally allergic to the hay because I'm allergic to Timothy mm. grass or whatever. So when I used to work at the farm, if I, I like one day I forgot to take my allergy medicine and I was like, I, I need to leave. I was covered in hives and I was like crying because my eyes How were just How much do you miss itchy. the farm? I missed a lot. 
yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go back because I still don't agree with necessarily all their treatment of the animals. After a while, I felt like they were unnecessarily prolonging some of the sick animals' lives and they were suffering. There really isn't another place around, like there's nowhere. But yeah, I miss, you know, I miss taking care of the animals. That's what I do. Like if I was going to leave, I'd just go work on a farm, a farm sanctuary. Um, I do think that you and I need to take a field trip to see this lady. Yes, please take me. And I can I'm take totally you to a, an animal sanctuary upstate, and then you can actually. And you can just keep moving us. Be north. vegan, yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, let's get into some emails here. Uh, do you want to start us off with uh, good old Spencer? Sure. So Spencer, Spencer had sent a long email and then replied to that email after listening to our most recent. So. They said, I just listened to the latest episode and I came I came to realize my previous email was through the lens of constitutional monarchy, where our prime minister is just an elected party leader, not that of the republic where one person holds likely too much power and then has to do something with it. From my experience in a constitutional monarchy, I have found the people who are career politicians to be irksome. However, when thinking about the U.S. systems with the executive branch being elected, I can see your point a little bit. That person has to know what they're doing and I know people who know how to get things done. So we'll concede slightly. I still believe that no one should be a professional politician, perhaps a professional civil servant or diplomat, but politicians should better represent the electorate. And that cannot be done with one person leading the executive branch. So, yeah, and I still get it. You know, what's interesting about this argument that I'm making is we know so many, which is why I started off the episode the way I did, talking about all of this scandalous things that other politicians or public figures have done. Uh, but more than that, I mean, you know, the the reason the label of being slimy sticks to so many politicians is because sometimes that backroom dealing aspect of, of politics becomes the persona when somebody's been in the game for so long. Some people are just hardwired that way. That's they get into it. They were already those people. I know just as many really good quality standout public servants who are also politicians because they have to run for elected office. So the, the distinction between a politician and a public servant or a civil servant, as Spencer's um, recommending here, is typically just the electoral process. The issue with that is you have to say a, and do a whole bunch of things to get elected, and then you can't always put those things into effect and design it around what your campaign promises are. And that makes you know politicians kind of stink. So I totally get that. My argument though is like, I'll give you a great example. The, I, I've said this before on the podcast and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. One of the very best public servants and politicians that I've ever known is the New York State Controller. There's a guy named Tom DiNapoli. He's kind, he's dedicated. He doesn't make overly generous promises he knows he can't keep, but he is considerate of the process of the electorate, shows up to everything. He's a very, very good policy shaper and maker and has been from his days uh, starting out at the school board, going into the New York State Assembly, all the way through to state controller. Just a, a, a true asset and restored the faith and confidence in an office in New York State for anybody that lives here. Uh, you might remember the scandal under a guy named Alan Hevesy, uh, and it was a terrible time for the controller's office. And it, uh, you're talking about the person that is in charge of, I, I don't know how big the pension fund is. Uh, suffice to say, it's one of the biggest in the country. A tremendous amount of people's retirements depend upon the, uh, the quality of the stewardship of that office. Tremendous public servant. 
I know so many people like that. My issue here that we'll get into even a little bit more is Marianne Williamson and and Robert Kennedy Jr. aren't running for Congress, not even running for Senate. You know, there was a years ago. Do you remember when uh, Patterson had the uh, Governor Patterson in New York had the uh, task of appointing a senator for uh, when that when it was vacated in New York, and that's how we wound up with uh, Gillibrand. Was probably, and then she won the election after that. I was probably like eight. <laughs> Uh, eh, I know the older. people, yeah. but not the event. I mean, so Robert Kennedy Jr. was one of the names that was being bandied about at that time. So it's like, you know, you, you talk about cutting the line. I, I'm, I even have less of a problem with somebody cutting the line in the legislative process because the leap from uh, a legislator, somebody in Congress of the 435 to president is still pretty long. You know, sometimes you get somebody who's who captures sort of the zeitgeist of the country and then and immediately jumps into the top spot like an Obama. Remember, I said that he was incredibly credentialed, Obama was, but also not as experienced as somebody would like uh, to get into that role, which is why he had somebody like Joe Biden. So there's all sorts of arguments and counter arguments to be able to support somebody who can capture the zeitgeist, who can rally support and rally people, build communities and coalitions. The difference here is that uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., the only reason he's the only reason he's here is because of his last name. The only reason. That's it. Has done nothing demonstrable that would indicate that he would be an effective public servant, politician, organizer of mass amounts of people behind an idea. They're all saying the party line of the progressive and they've got the issues down. Knowing the issues doesn't mean that you are effectively being able to champion and get those things done, a la what Jennifer Briney was talking about with uh, Dr. Kornberg in the episode. It's very hard to move legislation and public opinion and support and all these things without developing coalitions. What I didn't go further into was what is a coalition? A coalition is, is usually two parts when you talk about the political process. Part number one is building a coalition of support among the electorate and the people who can help gather momentum among the electorate. So the followers of an, an ideology, in this case, the progressives, but who they're tethered to in their local communities and their outreach groups and all of the organizers that are on the ground. That's a system that is very, very highly evolved and developed at the local level. It's one of the best things about our process. It's also one of the things that holds us back. Irrespective of that, it's the process. So there's building those type of coalitions. Then there are unions, public service unions, the um, the uh, the trade unions and all of those. Those organization, remember, only only almost half of the population votes. Of the part that does vote, many of them are tied to an organizing effort, like a union or like some sort of local, um, you know, coalition. So they have neither of those. Followers are not coalitions in the political structure. So Somebody that can, and, and Bernie saw this, right? Bernie was filling stadiums before the uh, the mainstream media ever even uh, paid attention to him, right? What made Bernie a standout was that he had the organizers on the ground that he had built up over, you know, several decades. 
state by state, precinct by precinct. So they couldn't ignore him because he became a thing at the polls because there was already this groundswell of support. And then the rabbit following, following was following him into these stadiums. Trump is a total outlier. But if your example is that, well, Trump did it, then you have to carry that to its logical conclusion and say, yeah, he did. And look what we got. We don't need more demagogues, even if they're aligned with the things that you love, because they're not going to be able to get anything done to an appreciable level. You're telling me Mitch McConnell isn't going to outflank Robert Kennedy Jr. every step of the fucking way? Just, just, I mean, it's it's impossible to think that he's going to outmaneuver somebody who's a professional at this. So people, other people had asked, well, what do you want to do then? If they're not, you know, they're not running. You just want Joe Biden to be president. That wasn't my argument at all. And I don't think I actually made it effectively enough. If this is the slate, the way it is today, I'm voting for Joe Biden because I don't want a spiritual demagogue and I don't want uh, a demagogue like uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. who built his entire cult of personality around being against science. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah. Right. He, it was so hard because I was trying to look up if he had any other anti-science takes and like He's an environmental lawyer. So yeah. why don't you, how can you be so obtuse about something here? And I would also be afraid. He honestly, they, they both scare me in different ways, but the way that the anti-vax movement parlays so closely into like Q and then alt-right would scare me about his alliances. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, a long time ago, I told you about that. I read the, the tagline of that documentary that like, the COVID, it wasn't pandemic, but it was a different like anti-vax documentary. And he was like, he was affiliated with it. And everybody else on that list was either sort of Q adjacent or alt-right adjacent or, so uh, it would, I can easily see him getting in there and cross aisle partisanship with, with some of these really dangerous people. Chris Hedges recently spoke at the National Mall at a gathering of right very, very, Again, Q-adjacent, alt-right people that were there ostensibly to protest our support of the uh, war in Ukraine. But being there, being in that is, there's so many more forums he could have appeared at. Let's just say that, right? Yeah. So his message, because I listened to the entire thing, and then I read the transcript, his message, totally on point. What he's always been saying, did not deviate from it but he chose to appear at a rally that had connections to the alt-right movement. So again, it is guilt by association because that was an active choice that he made just in the same way that RFK Jr. is making these very active choices to align with some pretty you know, dangerous people. Yeah, and Conspirituality did, they did like a second, uh, they have like mini episodes they call Briefs and they did a second one on Williamson. And I think she was speaking at some like conference or summit or something and all the other people on the list were like, What's that guy, the guy who only eat, like raw meat, those type of people, like the liver king or whatever they called him, like all these just kind of lunatic conspirituality people. And they said she's not endorsing them, but appearing on something like that, absolutely. It, if it was us and we were going to speak at some conference and we found out that like Marjorie Taylor Greene was also speaking, I'd say I'd probably say, hey, maybe we don't speak here because I don't want my name in press material with hers associated mm -hmm. that way. When well, so. I see her, remember the Prosperity Doctrine episode we did, I see no difference between her and Bruce Barton. 
her and Doug Veraday, her and Pat Robertson, as yeah. I pointed out. Pat Robertson's probably the, is her spirit animal in this race. He is a person, as 99 pointed out, who is entire life, worldview, work is informed by spirituality purely and religion. It's no different than Williamson. No yeah. different. I was trying to like, when I was, you know, writing the little section, you know, I had like the prayer breakfast and all of that in mind and the family and how we're, we just accepted that. We accepted that we have a national prayer breakfast. We We should not have that. If they wanted to hold a separate thing, like if Biden held like a personal prayer breakfast for his associates that shared his religious beliefs, that's fine. You're putting the word national on it. It's like implicating all of us in your religious belief and doctrine. So we're already there. Imagine how far she could take it and would take it because Biden's business isn't this. Right. It's just part of him. Right. Whether exactly. you like it or not. But right. I'm sure we'll get into it in more detail and further emails. Indeed. Indeed. All right. So on that note, Jeff E. said, just listen to you eviscerate Marianne and RFK Jr. Wow, that was rough. I agree they're a distraction at best. Worst? Also, I appreciate your point about them having absolutely no record of electoral success. So I have two questions. The first is, who would you support in a primary against Biden? Throw out a couple of names as standard bearers, but I think AOC is the only one with a decent ground game. Also, she's a lightning rod to bring more attention of the misogynist out to the polls. Like Hillary did in 16, I really hope AOC can do some bold things to build consensus over the next few years and run in 28. My second question, do you really think that Biden, as an 81-year-old man, will be able to sustain a national campaign while performing the duties of the most stressful job on the planet? My prediction is he has a bad health scare and withdraws from the campaign. That would leave the Dems with Vice President Harris, and I don't like her chances. I think Biden is being arrogant, just like RBG and Senator Feinstein before him. Yes, I completely agree with about your point about building the base, not aiming for the top of the castle, but I have zero faith in the Democratic Party to build an actual movement as they continually sell out the workers. Um, these are very real comments. These are very real considerations. Um, this isn't somebody just being mad because we're, you know, castigating somebody for their faith or their stances and saying that they're not qualified. This is somebody saying, like, let's really talk this out for a second here. Who would you want on the ballot? I'm a very, very big fan of Jamie Raskin. I'm a very big fan of Pramila Jayapal. Um, I would I would take pretty much, hmm, in terms of a executive authority, I know Ro, by the way, it's AOC is not going to be the leading contender among the squad. It will be Ro Khanna that emerges because he's already self-styling all of his public appearances and his stances that are... Let's just say he's punching above his weight right now in his public persona because I think he's trying to craft himself out to be the head of the progressive caucus and the heir apparent to uh, the Bernie movement. I'm going to hold any sort of additional thoughts on that for the time being. I like Rokana. He's done a couple of things. Again, the support of the war in Ukraine is one of them. He's He hasn't done as well when being challenged by true progressives, and we'll do a little bit more on Kana down the road, but... Anyway, for right now, I would have loved to see, not AOC, but somebody like Rokana, who's a little more seasoned. I love Katie Porter. I mean, I love Katie Porter. I'd love to see a Katie Porter out there. Not that I think that they could win. I don't think any of them have built a coalition of support to the level of a Bernie that would be able to come in and take over the Democratic Party from with, within, like we've suggested. 
but I do think that they would have mounted a a much more formidable and positive momentum campaign on behalf of the progressives to continue pushing Biden and the Biden administration to the left. So the problem here is that I think Biden's going to run and he will be healthy enough to run and it's not going to be Harris. Is he going to make it through a second term? Listen, on an actuarial basis, maybe not. You know, maybe fucking not. And then we'd have a President Harris. That's kind of a disaster, in my opinion, because, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of Kamala Harris at all, mostly because of her rather nothing Senate record, but also the fact that I think she is a wolf in sheep's clothing, uh, given her prosecutorial record in California as one of the least progressive DAs that they've ever had. At the middle of a movement for progressive DAs, she was going the other way. So, uh, no, not a huge fan of hers. But, man, this is the situation that we have. This is the hand that we're being dealt right now. And um, I see, so I'm strictly looking at Williamson and Kennedy as damaging the progressive brand. I wish it was somebody else running against them. And I could name a handful of people, as I just did that would have represented it better. And there's still time to jump in the field and I wish that they would do it. And it's, uh, I think it's incredibly bothersome. Do I think Biden makes it through? I do, I do, I hope. Because yeah, I don't I don't know if Harris stands up in a general against a Ron death sentence or a, or a Trump or whoever the inevitable is. Maybe someone else would. Youngkin said he's not running, by the way. Oh, good. Yeah. Maybe some man, white man, would be like, oh, this white man's out, I'll be, I'll tap in. So. Yeah, I wonder who that would I be. I could easily see the DNC being like, <laughs> we don't trust you, so we're going to put a man. We're going to nominate oh, yeah. a man. Oh, yeah, no. So 100%. maybe it wouldn't even be her. Mm. Oh, she's a good establishment figure, though. Yeah, but yeah. they hate women. No. Uh, well, they ran Hillary. Mm. They don't really, I mean, the DNC doesn't hate women as much as they well, just, just want Just having to... a black friend doesn't make you not racist. <laughs> Fair. All right, so let's get over to uh, some general emails now. What do we got? So, Oh, I, I'm going to read this because I added something back in that you okay. took out because you're modest. The first one is from Nolan C. 99 is my favorite. <laughs> Manny second, Max third. Sorry, Max, nothing personal. Just know it's not that I don't like you. It's just that you're surrounded yourself with such amazing people instead of pushovers and, quote, yes men that you're not Mr. Big Shot. Manny, hip hop is my number one genre. Easy, NWA, Biggie, M, Rakim, Wu Tang. How'd I do? I think good. Them all? Yeah. I, I mean, okay. I can't correct your pronunciation on some of them, but. Okay. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but my guess is that it was Easy E, and it's Rakim. Rakim, bro. The list goes on and on. I just wanted to say thank you for all the work you do involving hip-hop and politics. It brings both of my passions very neatly together. Thank you, Nolan. Appreciate you. Max, look at you, man. You're doing great things. You went from having 99 to open up your email and show notes to producing your own YouTubes. That's huge. I know I said 99, Manny, Max in that order, but I think it's because I relate more to them, Manny because of infusion of hip-hop and politics, 99 because of her social stances, views on the world, and quite frankly, age. Whereas with you, Max, don't get that big head of yours any fuller when I say this, but you've inspired me to be a more avid reader. Uh, Showed me it's who you surround yourself with, and if you say it, you better mean it, because it'll show. 
yeah, I think that, it, first of all, thank you for acknowledging the contributions of Manny and 99. The show, when it started out, for anybody who's joining us, you know, more recently, or maybe you've, you've found us through YouTube or what have you, the show as it started out was was uh, short, punchy essays that got a little bit tedious because it was just me talking, much like, you know, having to stare at me on do, on YouTube for the show notes or some of the other essays. It's when we brought more of the personality uh, with 99 in the show, when Manny sort of let loose a little bit in some of his commentary, when we developed show notes, that I think the show, the, the show itself began to evolve and take on its own personality. There's one big person, there's one big uh, figure missing. <laughs> one big person. <laughs> one big person, giant person. There's one uh, figure missing from this, and that is the actual, that's the unfuckers themselves. So what's interesting about the evolution of the show is I feel like there are certain standouts, you know, that we've had along the way. It might be uh, Tricution up in Canada. It might be Bobby D, uh, Bobby McDee from Ireland, uh, Knudsen certainly. All hail Nettie. Nettie, when in the very beginning of the show, uh, certainly kept us honest and pushed back uh, against a lot of uh, the things that we said because she was trying to drag us even further to the left and open our minds. The, the show evolved and took on the character that it did because of the fact that we were willing to engage more, I think, with the audience. One of the things that I, I believe makes Unfucking the Republic really, really special is that it is a very collaborative uh, experience and, and involves a lot of exchange like this. So the people that have pushed back on it, people have changed my minds. People have opened my mind to a whole bunch of different things that we'd never thought about before. Um, that's what I appreciate the most about it. I don't think that people would have been as willing to do it, though, if 99 hadn't made it such a personality driven show in addition to and, and also bringing certainly a, a younger but um, different lens and different perspective to it. Part of that is generational. Part of that is experiential. Uh, part of that is just her as a human being, being an empath and being very open to, I would say that you you feel more than most people, that you're very sensitive to the environment, to people around you, to people's feelings, to, to the things that you see. And oftentimes you come off as um, being really principled in one specific way and really passionate about it and and almost sounding like you're not open to other ideas when it's the exact opposite you're extremely passionate about it but you're very open and willing to engage and willing to learn and willing to collaborate all of the connections that we have with the audience are built from pathways that 99 created all the ability to email us or you know come yeah, to I us invented to social. email but I mean, seriously, like I, I wouldn't have had time or I, I don't think I would have considered that as much of a part of the show if 99 hadn't reached out and encouraged that type of interaction with the show uh, and then built the pathways to literally do it. And uh, I don't think Manny chimes in enough at the end of our episodes or show notes, hint, hint, Manny, because uh, I love hearing from him. Yeah, he's going to chime in and say, hint, hint, send it earlier. <laughs> yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I'd say. But anyway, I just wanted to say uh, thank you, Nolan, for acknowledging that. I love them dearly, and this show is truly uh, a, a spirited collaboration between the three of us. Uh, but don't discount the unfuckers as well, because they've added a, a huge dynamic to the show. Thanks, Nolan. I will read from Shelby G., who said, I've been a listener since episode one and will continue to listen, but I was really disappointed in the Noam Chomsky take in episode 95 and Max and 99 talking after. 
Made me feel like I was in a high school listening to mean girls judging other people. Because he's an intellectual, I would expect him to talk to all kinds of people, good or bad, and everyone in between. I'm sure he would say yes to a sit-down with Hitler. How else would he learn about different people and perspectives? I'm also sure the wide array of people he has talked to has had a huge role in forming the ideas he has, those same ideas that people on the left find so influential. He's not endorsing what any of those people did, including Epstein. We don't know what they discussed or how the dinners came to be, but it really is nobody's business unless it was something illegal. Neither are elected officials slash public servants. What if Ghislaine Maxwell wanted to sit down and have dinner with you for whatever reason? Wouldn't you go just to pick her brain? Out of curiosity, if nothing else. That doesn't mean you're okay with the crime she committed. Moving forward, Chomsky's future thoughts and ideas will not be diminished by me, whereas Taibi will because he's a sellout. Um, okay, let's see. So, I feel like Shelby made the distinction between Taibi and Chomsky. Because Chomsky's not an intellectual yeah, he's, sellout. He's, his he's ideas are his out. ideas. I mean, whereas we don't know where Matt's are coming from now because he might have sold out his principles. Yeah, no, I, I know. I was just saying, like, it... It's funny to be so definitive in one take, like one take and then be like, well, actually, you guys were being mean girls because when I said he's dead to me, it means I don't I, I lose respect for him. And he was never my hero. Like he wasn't someone I knew or, or to, I knew of, but I didn't talk about Noam Chomsky in my regular day to day life before this. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I've spent way more hours in my life talking about him than I would have ever imagined. So it's really easy for me to say he's dead to me. And also, I'm not. I wasn't as influenced by his work because he's not like a thinker of my generation. He's literally almost 100. So his stuff is way, way beyond me, above my, honestly, above a lot of my interests and just my reading and pay grade. So easy for me to say. I think Max did say he's not dead to me. And, you know, he definitely said, fuck you, but... If anything, Max never discredits, to, to my chagrin, he doesn't give people up if they are bad now, but they had good ideas. Sometimes I want to just, you know, let them go and stop <laughs> talking about them. So I don't think it's fair to say that we were being mean to criticize him for for fraternizing with multiple times a known child, well, two known child molesters, a sex trafficker, and and war criminals, like I can understand. It's just what we were saying about Williamson and Kennedy. Like, you're the company you keep. I'm not going to, if you could just keep hanging out with Epstein, I'm not going to be like, that's okay. You're just picking his brain. Eventually, you need to stop. What ideas is he going to have? And also, do you really want your ideas coming from Jeffrey Epstein? Would I sit down with Ghislaine Maxwell? Sure, if the FBI had me wired and I was being an informant, what am I going to pick her brain about? Sex trafficking? (laughs) I mean, I'm serious. Like, it's the same way I said to to Nathan last week about why are we so quick to to call these men like they just have addictions. In the same way here, like, why are we so quick to just make excuses for people Mm -hmm. we like? Everybody should be held to the same level of scrutiny. If it was George W. Bush having lunch with Jeffrey Epstein or Noam Chomsky, or if it was fucking Bernie, I'd say the goddamn same thing. Like, it's not mean to talk about people's faults. Sure, can I be callous and say you're dead to me? Yeah, because I don't care. He's dead to me. I don't give a shit. But you're not going to, so I don't know. I just... This one hit me the wrong way. I felt like it was, I felt like this email was actually judgmental. Sorry, Shelby. I appreciate your listenership, but you tweaked me. <laughs> no, and and I think, Shelby, I, I landed pretty much where what you're offering here uh, in in the way that I perceived all of this, which was Noam Chomsky's contributions to so many different fields 
are are enormous. And I don't think that his interactions with a Jeffrey Epstein diminish the contributions themselves. But there's no question that it is a lapse of personal judgment, a tremendous lapse of personal judgment. And he should be criticized. And you and again, he's a public figure and there's a difference. So let's say somebody who you know, grew up with Jeffrey Epstein, was a friend of Jeffrey Epstein's through childhood or whatever. And that person friend wants of to Jeffrey. It's like friend out. of Dorothy, but you're a pedophile. Right. It wants to, you know, and, and still take his phone calls and have a dinner with him every once in a while because he served his time and he did all those kind of things. I'm not going to criticize that person because it's a personal choice and there's nothing for me to get. Noam Chomsky is a public figure. He's a public intellectual. I mean, that is literally the definition of his title in our society. And he has been for a long, long time. And it wasn't just a meeting. It was multiple meetings. Here's the problem that I have with his personal judgment as a public figure meeting with Jeffrey Epstein multiple times is that he himself said it's no different than all of the other wealthy donors that I have to rub elbows with and have rubbed elbows with over the years at cocktail events and in the buildings that are actually named after these horrible people and war criminals, what's the difference? The difference is you're choosing to do that on your personal time. There is no way because of everything that was known at the time that you perceive that as something other than bending a knee to the donor class. There's no way because we knew two things about Jeffrey Epstein. Yes, he may have served his time, but he served his time for for pedophilia and sex trafficking. What are you gaining from this person? I don't know. Maybe it was about how the financial markets operated. But we also knew from this time, it was well understood in so many circles that Jeffrey Epstein in the financial industry was a pariah. Everybody on Wall Street understood that the way that he made his money was essentially by blackmailing people. That was widely known, mm-hmm. widely known. He had every time he met with somebody about them investing institutionally, investing into his fund, they left the meeting saying, because this is on record a thousand times, but that guy really doesn't know anything. This is all a scam. They knew it. They fucking knew it. Just like every institutional investor on Wall Street knew that Bernie Madoff was a scam. They knew it. Not as many people as you'd think, I think. Institutional. Institutional investor. Very different than personal investors. That one guy who was like, I wrote them a million times. He knew. He knew. Yeah. So the individuals that gave money to Jeffrey Epstein to build his vast network of wealth were probably either blackmailed or in on it or didn't care. Didn't care about his exploits. Just liked being in the scene. Just like with Bernie Madoff, the people that gave him money were personal individuals, people that were taken in because they thought they were in on a little secret. But the institutional investors, once they, I mean, they asked him for his records. He was like, ah, (laughs) Mm, I really don't have those, but just trust me, I have 17% returns year after year and I've been doing it for 25 years. There isn't an institutional investor in New York of any credibility looked at Bernie Madoff and looked at Jeffrey Epstein and thought, uh, oh, yeah, these these guys really have something special. They've figured something out that none of us have ever figured out since the beginning of investing, since, you know, uh, going Buffett and before. Right. So it wasn't investing. Right. You're not learning anything about Wall Street. 
unless you have a keen interest in sex trafficking, I'm not sure that he had anything else to necessarily offer. So you're just carousing, essentially, with a donor. That's yeah. it. Or someone who's bringing you girls. Right? Now, Chomsky's going with his wife, and presumably that wasn't his interest in it. He was also, I think, in his 80s when he was going there, in his 90s or whatever. But so you're, and so my point again about the donor class is Noam Chomsky doesn't need to raise money from a Jeffrey Epstein. Noam Chomsky is not not the person they trot out at these events (laughs) for fucking fundraising. He's just not. If anything, he's been a thorn in the side of the institutions that he's been associated with because he criticizes them so often. And the people will fall asleep if he's there. That too. Not not really a scintillating public speaker. Although I I find him- Scintillating speaker. Scintillating. It's just the way In the old days. Yeah. Now- now in the old days, I really I, I don't know. I heard in when we did the episode, you pulled some clips, and it was it hasn't changed. He's Very just fact, a little and, older. Just, you know, you know what it is. Um, I feel so my anyway, eyes closing. In all in all in any way you look at this, it, him is it, it's just cavorting with uh, with a known pedophile for for no discernible reason uh, that for that would improve either his employers position or his station in life. It's just a personal decision. So I criticize him as a human being for having really terrible judgment. So fuck you for that, Noam Chomsky. And also what he's contributed over the last, I don't know, 80 years to the field of linguistics, to the field of public policy, to foreign affairs, to uh, the political life in this and other countries is invaluable. I think those two things can live together. It just means that I'm not going to celebrate Noam Chomsky Day anymore. Yeah. And if we if we extrapolate the argument out, it's saying that any public figure who's done something good is immune from criticism. Right. So like the founder of Planned Parenthood was a eugenicist. So should we just accept that? No, we could say, hey, Planned Parenthood has done a lot of oh, we had a light go out. Light. Oh boy. Um, you know, obviously Planned Parenthood has saved many people's lives, their you know, their health, they've giving people their lives back. Mm -hmm. But we can't not talk about that part. It's not the only thing we should talk about, but we can't not talk about it. The U.S. brought over a lot of Nazi scientists. Yes, we did. So all of the things they created, I can't, you know, I'm not, not, nothing specific is coming to mind. I mean, isn't it how we got to the moon, essentially? I think with Nazi technology, I mean, are we going to say we can't talk about space travel because we had Nazi scientists? No. But we should also say, hey, we brought over a lot of fucking Nazis. (laughs) We have to we have to call these things out because Shelby, the you know, it's part of speaking truth to power is holding everybody accountable, not just the people we we like or not just the people we don't like. Rather, like it's why we're okay talking about Democrats. And again, very similar to what we talked about last week, we should talk about the failings of of progressives, of Democrats, what they can do better, you know, but you're you're not going to say Joe Biden didn't do something good if he did, mm-hmm. because we're not just so staunch in our beliefs or our, our preferences for people that we can't acknowledge if they do something well. Right. And but- listen, I was just watching uh, in preparing for the socialism episode. I had questions about uh, Lenin. And Chomsky has an, has an amazing lecture on Leninism versus Stalinism versus Trotsky, I, uh, you know, Trotskyism and all of that. Yeah. I'm I'm taking it in and and appreciating 
Again, the very, very pedestrian and accessible language that he uses to break all of this stuff down. I'm not criticizing the work, but I'm criticizing the judgment of the man specifically. Yeah, so, you know, sorry for yelling at you, Shelby. Um, <laughs> honestly, I got so worked up, my back stopped hurting for a minute. Oh, wow. It focused my pain somewhere else. Adrenaline. I think, honestly, Adrenaline I think is that, a cure-all. I really think so. True. Because I it was True. just on my soapbox, so... We've been at this for quite some time, so uh, let's power through here. Over on the Facebooks, Jennifer H. There is hey, it's Manny Faces. Listen, uh, quick disclaimer. For the next few minutes, there was a slight issue with Max's microphone in the studio. Uh, I'm not there, so it's not my fault. Uh, <laughs> but I'm able to do what I can to make it manageable and not make your ears bleed. So just want to let you know, you'll hear it, you'll understand it, it'll come, and then it'll be fixed, and everything will be fine again. Thanks. Over on the Facebooks, Jennifer H., there isn't enough good sense between the two of them, Williamson and RFK, to change the light bulb. They're not the future of the progressive movement, just an annoying bump on the road. Could have been the whole episode. Mm -hmm. And then we heard from Knudsen, who shared a post that he he shared in the Facebook group. So he said, here's the comment. In show notes a while back, I was the recipient of a good-natured fuck you, Knudsen. Uh, I believe that was me. <laughs> I was arguing against the notion of framing things as the lesser of two evils and for framing election choices and the like as choosing the greatest possible good. My slogan may have fallen flat, but it appears the idea is right on track with part of Max's message in this episode. Biden is the greatest possible good in the upcoming presidential election. Joe's phrase of don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative also tracks here. We don't currently have an alternative to Biden that has a glimmer of hope in defeating any of the troglodytes the maggot-infested radicalized Republican right-wing nuts will choose, especially if they choose twice impeached multiple indictment earning 45th holder of the office again. The progressive bench is not that deep, and we need more of us involved in big-D Democratic politics, so we will sooner than later have to have better alternatives to choose from. I, too, really wish the two wannabes would quietly step away. Uh, damaging the progressive brand is the only thing they can accomplish by staying involved. And here's the police coming to arrest me for being a woman with a microphone. Isn't that illegal in 2023? Uh, not in New York. Mm, right, yeah. Just Texas and Florida. And probably Jersey. Uh, good stuff, Knudsen. Appreciate you for, for clarifying that. I'm so sorry. Oh my goodness. That one's for you. For allowing you. <laughs> yeah. For enabling us. But you'll get less time somehow. Oh, I'm not doing time. <laughs> Let's be honest. I, I want to see you in like at least like a little uh, neon vest, like picking up litter. Not going to happen. Why? I'm a white guy. I'm sorry. Mm. No, I'm a white guy. They might look at your 23 and me. Do not do that. <laughs> white, I'm a white presenting. Mm. There we go. Um, listen, oh, uh, Dan G, by the way, uh, responded... Uh, this was brought up by some in the et al. group, and I happen to agree with it, as do many. There's no need to criticize or downplay <laughs> the phrase ginned up. It's a wonderful phrase and very relevant in our modern-day lexicon, despite 99 not being familiar with it. To stir up, stimulate, enliven, incite. Those are great uh, synonyms that I that I can work into it. Yeah. See, I do have, uh, I know that I have many, many verbal crutches, and I cringe whenever I say them. Massive is another one. I use massive way too much. Um, I have a bunch of them. But yeah, it was, I had no problem. It's just that I've used it in, in very, like a bunch of times in close proximity, which also. No, you say it at least once an episode. No. Yes, I 
I, if I did a control F through the transcripts, yes. So I have no problem with the phrase. It just needs to be used sparingly as with anything else, because then all I hear is you saying ginned up again and not the message or any of your other. I mean, I know mine are, I think, I say, I think. That's a true verbal crush. That's not like a- Well, my, no, mine is because I'm a woman and I don't want people to accuse me of telling them what to do. So I like to say, I think, so they, it, it separates it. So it's like, they can't criticize me because I think it. Yeah, it took me a while to, to realize why I do it. And I had to, I try to stop it if I can in writing, mm. but I, I do it without thinking. Mm. I think. Wink. But yeah, so I just want some, you know, word diversity. Understood. Word versity. Understood. No, I got a couple good ones. Stir up, stimulate, enlighten, inside. I love it. Arouse. Hey now. All right. Uh, there was a lot. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you pick your head. You have too many headlines. <laughs> there was a lot going on on YouTube. So let me just start and I'll give you some highlights of these and go through them as quickly as possible because there many of them are related. So uh, T. Jefferson had a really good comment. What happened to contested primaries make the party stronger? I thought the time to expand the debate and policies and issues was during primaries. Uh, what's your N99's beef with A Course in Miracles? This seems like a reflexive knee-jerk response from people who have never read the book. Yeah, I never will because I don't want to. And why would I? Because I don't need to believe that everything is love and everything I do is because I thought wrong. Yeah, I'm also not going to read it because I'm not interested in... We can't. We don't really use the term guru anymore. But in in this case, it's the they do <laughs> themselves self styled gurus, self help, the Oprah book club type of you know the secret type of phenomenon, right? That is honestly a great rule of thumb. If Oprah shielded, stay away because Oprah just leaned into the trends and was responsible for so much, so many harmful things and practices. I mean. James Arthur Ray, she had him on. She had, I mean, the guy who wrote of the original Course in Miracles. I'm just listening, I'm listening to this podcast called A Very British Cult. And it's about this like group in, in England, obviously. And it basically sucks people into like a self-help thing. It start people get inducted, for lack of a better word, through different things. But some of the, the key victims in the story joined a reading group for the book uh, Seven, what is it? Seven Habits of yeah so like then they the leader of that of their group he just basically has taken multiple different self-help books and put them into one doctrine in quotes and they 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 traced it back all been on oprah so it's you know like if you're ever if you're ever sus of something see if it's been on oprah and then google blank blank debunked listen if you're into the self-help genre I really, I have no problem with that. If you can do it with an awareness that there's met, that a lot of it has a grift behind it of people that are trying to build some sort of cult of following around certain principles that they claim to be universal. Yeah. My issue here on just that front, not even related to politics, is that it's like this idea that you can change your circumstances through thought, through love, through prayer, not through work, but, you know, or doing the work of prayer and all these type of spiritual references. This is this has been cast and recast and recast and repackaged for centuries. And it's, you know, it's a lot of what religion is about. 
you know, except that there are, you know, certain protocols to, you know, to religion and there's certain hierarchical structures to it and all those kind of things. But at, at, at their core, that's what Jesus was doing. Jesus walked the earth and that's what Muhammad was doing. And that's what any sort of figure that started something. And then things were built around it to try and organize ideas that were central to the same tenets, be a good person, love, do all the things that we know that humans are supposed to do. Right. If you're claiming though, that being part of this and adopting this type of lifestyle can then alter certain outcomes within your life or other people's lives, then just walk up a pediatric cancer ward. Right. That That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, I'm okay with, you know, I don't necessarily agree with the fact that, like, if you have a sick child or if you get sick, that that's what God intended. That's not my belief. But if you strongly believe that that's, quote, his path for you and that everything will be okay and, I mean, hopefully do treatment because God put, quote, if God is real, then he made all those things happen technically, whatever, you know, all the, the loopholes. But, like, I'm okay with that line of thinking as long as it's if it's you. But like to tell somebody who may be looking for answers of like, why am I sick or why am I poor? And being like, well, you just didn't think hard enough about not being poor or you didn't love enough. And it, it's that's why it really is the secret. Like anyone who is questioning, I guess, technically reading the, the Course in Miracles would be better. But Watch the documentary, like watch the documentary, The Secret. Don't get grifted by it. Go and, you know, have popcorn and some beers with friends and watch that and think about that person who believes something like that running the country and that type of that, that, that type of thinking. So that's our problem with it is that it's it really is. It's just your circumstances are your circumstances because you were put there. So like I said in my little diatribe, how can you reconcile you know, generational poverty and racism and then just be like, well, have you thought about not being poor? Like, or thought, just think really hard about what you want. And if you want, what you want is money, just think about money all the time. Where's that money going to come from? It would be lovely if it worked that way. I wish that was true. It would be great if we could think ourselves out. But that's why, that's why I, you know, I just can't do that shit. It's just fucking gives people false hope. It takes advantage of people. You can't systematize your life and with with self-help like right. it's just not how it works so right. all right so that's uh that's t jefferson's response but the other side of that t jefferson is contested primaries making the parties stronger absolutely these aren't the people i want running in them no question so i did not i was not explicit enough about saying that i really want another progressive in there but the fact that this is the slate that we have uh i it's not what i want uh, Rita B said, sorry, can't vote for Biden if he's indeed the candidate in 24. Just can't. I'll vote third party. Specker had a response to this, said, Rita B, your integrity is laudable. This is what I was talking about in the beginning, about the fact that the unfuckers are coming in here and already sort of like curating the way that people respond to each other in a positive way. So Specker, I appreciate you doing that. Um, I share your fundamental distaste for the oligarchy. Yes, both parties are entrenched in neoliberal capitalism, no doubt. I'd love to make third party voting a possibility, but I'd also love to take corporations out of politics to curb their existential threat to humanity. If you can't do that, I do get it. Obviously, I've been there myself. I'd only be a self-righteous a-hole to say otherwise. Glad you're here. So I included, so Rita actually kicked off a, a pretty long comment thread. I would encourage you to read it if you get a chance. Read uh, it. But Specker, what's that? Read it. Her name's Rita. So read, read it. Read it from Rita. 
but Specker, that's why I wanted to call that out. The way that this was so uh, graciously handled actually helped inspire even more conversation. And that's how it's done. Love it. Norma B said, well done, Max in 99. I was getting lovely flashbacks of Jon Stewart. Oh, that's a lovely thing to say. I meant this as a compliment, of course. I could see you having your own television show shared. People need this information so clearly explained. Wow. Thanks, Norma. I hope I'm Jon Stewart in Big Daddy. Like a hot single dad who didn't know he had a kid. That's that's the Jon Stewart I aspire to be. Oh, we're, we're even running out of battery. Oh, no. On the cameras. Sorry. Uh, I just needed to talk about how uh, hot he is in that movie. Okay, we lost camera two, so we're just on camera one, and I don't know how for how long. Do you want to just skip to coffee donation? Yes, and so with that, let's stay on Specker for a moment. Um, Specker bought us five coffees. Not sure why, no comment with it, but we appreciate you for doing it. Yeah. And Maria from Puerto Rico bought five coffees. This is for the three of you. Thank you for the Williamson and Kennedy episode. Max, I agree with the argument you made. I don't understand Max's gin up expression either, nor some of his other idiomatic expressions. What he said today about a V in your vomit. I'm you. I think you said B. So oh, it's it's B E E in your bonnet like a hat, Maria. I put that in there to clarify because maybe someone else. I mean, that's awesome. We take that for granted that we we just talk quickly and then expect people to know what we're saying. That's so, right. Yeah. B in your bonnet, mm-hmm. right? Um, these coffees here is because you're officially working so hard. I can't keep up anymore. I tend to hoard your podcast episodes when I can really listen and focus. Well, thank you for the, uh, the coffees, Maria. That's very kind of you. Thank you, Specker, for the coffees. Real quick, Maria is going to be in the Netherlands, and she asked us to call out if any unfuckers who aren't in the Facebook group live in the Netherlands. Go to the Facebook group. Go coordinate. There you go. Get after it. Join unfuckers at all. Knutson will let you in if you're a good person and you leave positive comments, even if you disagree. Yeah, you have to leave a review to get in. They don't tell you that, but wink. Ha ha. Yes. A good review. Only five stars. All right, unfuckers. That's it for this week. Uh, Remember, it's a replay, but with a new introduction this weekend. And then we'll catch you with the uh, socialism series after that. And we'll catch you online. Bye.